We're going to look at this series uh, that is beginning at SMAC on the end of the world, the end of the world. And today we're going to start at this end that is about to come, or even actually here. So will you join me as we ask God to help us to understand his word? Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you're the one who's in control of history, that history is ultimately your story. And so, Father, we pray that we may not only understand your plans, but our part, our place in those plans of yours. And we ask that we might have humble hearts, that we might be willing to change our plans, our lives, to fit in with your plan. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever seen people around who carry placards like this? The end is nigh, the end is near. And often they're referring to the coming of Jesus. And they really believe it, don't they? They believe that this end is going to come. Now, if you believe something, friends, you will act upon it, won't you? If I said to you there's a bomb in this building, you would dash off, you'll gather your kids from Sunday school, you'll grab whatever you don't want to lose and escape. There's an urgency. In the 1990s, uh, back in Sydney, there was a Korean church that said that Jesus would come on the 28th of October that year. And they would meet Jesus at the mega mall, the local mega mall called Stratfield, Westfields. And people in that congregation sold their property, gave their money away, and all waited at the mega mall. Of course, Jesus did not come. And so we see many people who say, well, yes, sure, you predict this year, that year, that year, never comes. Maybe it's just near. Now, we who are sensible Christians, we know that you can't predict precisely the day that Jesus will turn up. But because he hasn't shown up for so long, for 2,000 years he hasn't shown up, we not only dismiss these people as crazy, we actually dismiss perhaps this whole idea as crazy. I mean, is Jesus really going to come in my lifetime? Is he going to come in my children's lifetime? And so we quietly distance ourselves from anyone who would say that Jesus is coming soon. We don't wake up thinking, oh, Jesus could come today. We don't factor in Jesus' second coming into our lives' desires, into our lives' plans. We just get on with the next urgent thing, the next meeting, the next assignment, the next deadline, the next... We tip our hat to Christianity, come to church regularly, even be active at church in some things. But really, we ignore the fact that Jesus is going to come back. We build our life with ease and security among us. 
hoping to avoid all suffering, we try to save and secure what we do not want to lose. And when we see people holding up those crazy signs, the end is near, we sort of look down on them. What a loser. We even walk on the other side of the street. We're almost ashamed of them. Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. On judgment day. But then there's something very strange in this passage. In chapter 9 and verse 1, it says, Truly I say to you, there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. How can Jesus say that? That back then, you know, 2,000 years ago in the first century AD, that the kingdom, the power, the glory, the coming of the Son of Man would have come. There are people who are still living there, still alive, and they would see it with their own eyes. How can that be? And who actually is this Son of Man? I mean, we all know it's Jesus, don't we? But why does he identify himself? Why does he label himself as this Son of Man? Because that's exactly what's happened here. Here in the turning point of Mark's Gospel, you know, Peter suddenly, finally worked out that Jesus is the Messiah the one who's going to come and overthrow the Romans, the, the freedom fighter, the Jewish king. But Jesus shifts the conversation. He doesn't want to talk about this Messiah, this Christ. He shifts it and he starts saying and talking about the Son of Man. And so in verse uh, 27, verse 31 there, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. Many things be rejected by the elders, chief priests, scribes, be killed, and on the third day rise again. He was very clear about this. And look what Peter did. Peter took him aside and rebuked him. Can you imagine that? Telling your master, telling your teacher that he's wrong. Why was Peter so strong? Well, it's because he didn't expect... He didn't think that the king, the Jewish king, would, would die. He's meant to be the freedom fighter. How can he die and be killed and, and be rejected by his own people? Which is exactly why Jesus switches the label he wants to put on himself. He doesn't want to really be seen as the Messiah, the Jewish king. He wants to be seen as the Son of Man. But who is this? Son of Man. Uh, you may be a visitor here. This might be your first time here. A family, friend, um, brought you along. You've heard about Jesus, but haven't really heard about this uh, Son of Man. Was that me or was that you? Um, 
You're coming along, you haven't heard about the Son of Man. Friends, very important that you understand Jesus as the Son of Man. It's the most important thing that you'll ever hear in your life to understand this Jesus. Well, what is the Son of Man? The place to go back to is Daniel chapter 7 that was read for us in the Old Testament. Jesus deliberately pointing back there some 600 years earlier. For 600 years or so earlier, Daniel had a vision. It was a time when the people of God had rejected God. God had punished them and sent them off to exile in Babylon. You can find out the history about this. You can find out the archaeology about this. You just go to the British Museum. Uh, they've got artefacts from that time. And then, in that time, Daniel gets this vision from God that you've probably heard about, Daniel chapter 7. And it's this vision that Jesus gets this idea of the Son of Man. It's a very exciting uh, sci-fi kind of kind of story, kind of vision. Here it is again. Uh, I looked, and there was placed the Ancient of Days. He took his seat. The Ancient of Days is God. He takes his seat. What kind of seat is it? It's a judgment seat. It's a throne seat. You see, because this Ancient of Days has, has, has white woolen hair. It's the kind of idea of a, of a judge. That's why these days, uh, all the lawyers, they walk around with this wig, don't they, right? They are the judge. They are the ones in power. 10,000 times 10,000, it says. Now, that's as big a number as anyone can think of. All these people are in this judgment room under God, the judge. And it is this judgment day, and there's the story of all these beasts. And so you see... There are these beasts that come with words, boastful words, speaking. They're the ones who are anti-God. But then comes the height of the vision in verse 13. Daniel says, oh, there's the, uh, the judge. But Daniel says, I saw in my night vision, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like, and there it is, the Son of Man. There is the Son of Man. He came along to the Ancient of Days, was presented before him. And to him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, kingdom. All peoples, nations, everywhere serves him. And his kingdom will not pass away. There is the Son of Man. He is, he's a king. He's one who will rule forever. Very important that he is a man. Because remember, there's all this uh, vision of the four beasts. But remember, in Genesis chapter 1, man was created to rule over all the animals. And here's this vision of this figure of the son of man, a man who rules over all the beasts, all the animals. On Judgment Day, at the end of the world, Everything God puts under the Son of Man. This apocalyptic language, this uh, science fiction stuff, moves forward to this height, to this climax. Now, 
most of us think that the coming of the Son of Man is about Jesus coming back to us, isn't it? He's going to come back to us. But if you have a look more carefully at Daniel chapter 7, the direction of the coming is not coming down to us. Rather, you see there, with the clouds of heaven, he comes to God, to the Ancient of Days. And so the direction is, the Son of Man to us? No. But rather, the Son of Man comes with the clouds to God the Judge. That is the direction. That's where the vision of Daniel 7 is heading to. Now, that's the vision. Usually, back in Sydney, we Bible-believing Christians, we stop at Daniel chapter 7 and verse 14. That's as far as we get. But the trouble is, Daniel does not think about Jesus. He doesn't think that the Son of Man is Jesus. He doesn't know about Jesus. He's 600 years B.C. Daniel's confused about this vision. I mean, just imagine you're lying there at night having a sleep and then you suddenly you see all these crazy things. What are the beasts? What is this Son of Man? And so he's sort of waking up and he asks the person, maybe an angel, who shows him this vision and saying, what is going on? And so, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was, well, anxious. The visions of my head twirled around and alarmed me. So I approached one of those who stood there and, and I asked them the truth concerning this. You see, this person then told him the interpretation of the vision. Very important, isn't it? If you're going to read in context, we've got the vision. Hey, here's the interpretation. The one place to look to see what it's about is the rest of Daniel chapter 7. And so comes the interpretation. Verse 17. Well, the four great beasts, they're going to represent different nations, the superpowers of the day. The, the USA, the Russians, the, uh, the Chinas of their day. They're kings that sprout forth. The superpowers, one after the other, one horn after another horn. But then, what happens in this, this story? Who is this son of man? Well, the interpretation goes on to speak about the son of man He's going to be under threat. He's going to be overpowered before he bounces back. Let's see this uh, interpretation. You see the Son of Man there in verse uh, 19. He wants to know the truth about the fourth beast. And as you read through there, this fourth beast is uh, very uh, scary, very threatening. A lot of people get distracted about, oh, who exactly is this uh, fourth beast that destroys the other horns and comes up and, you know, it's like politics, isn't it, right, that keeps changing and, well, you know about that in Malaysia. Well, who is it? Well, that's not the key. The key is, don't get distracted about the horn and the beast. The key is, who is this son of man? Well, you see there in verse uh, 21, he looked, the horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. 
until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. There's a time when the, 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 the beasts are going to overpower God's people but then God will give power back to his people. Or down in uh, verse uh, 29, verse 29. Again here we see that there's power given to the ten horns, kings that come, kings that dominate. And then the courts sit in judgment. And the dominion of these beasts, of these horns, is, is taken away. And the kingdom again is given to the people of the saints of the Most High. And God in his kingdom will rule forever. See, that's the interpretation. What's going to happen is God's people are going to be oppressed and persecuted, almost dead, almost gone, destroyed. But then that judgment day will come and God will reverse it all. That is the interpretation of the vision. It's like when your favourite sport team is about to lose. I love soccer, and so I go for a team called Real Madrid, and some of you may know Cristiano Ronaldo, well, he's gone anyway, but Real Madrid is still there. And last year in the Champions League, they were about to be knocked out. They had lost in their first league to Manchester City. Boo, right? Manchester City. 3-4, they were down. And then in the second league, and the Real Madrid was in white, the Manchester City in blue, they scored again. We were down three to five. And then the 90 minute of almost to the end, in the 89th minute, suddenly we scored. Now four, five. And then in the next 90 goal, <laughs> five all. It was a great comeback. And then an extra time, we scored a penalty and we won. Now all the commentators around the world, would, they said, this is amazing. Uh, the, the, the soccer gods are with Real Madrid. They talked about how this was supernatural. This comeback, they were dead. They talked about the Real Madrid resurrection. In Daniel chapter 7, this is what we have, is that the Son of Man actually comes and... He's the one who's given this victory. He was almost dead, but now he has come back. Now, before you think of the Son of Man as Jesus dying on the cross and then coming back, you've got to remember, first and foremost, in Daniel chapter 7, Jesus is not even in the picture. Who is this Son of Man figure? It is actually representing the saints of the Most High. Just as the beasts represent all these pagan nations, the Son of Man represents God's people. That God's people will be oppressed and then come back. That is, the Son of Man is not an individual figure, not just that. He's an individual figure who 
represents collectively the people of God. Just like when your sports hero wins, then you win. And so in that game, the sports hero won, and so all the crowd cheered. We won. See, in Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man was given all power and dominion. When you look at the interpretation, God's people was given all power and dominion forever. Daniel, however, was still confused. At the end of the chapter, he doesn't really know what is going on. He's still alarmed, but he just kept it to himself. At the end of the book of Daniel in chapter 12, the same thing. He gets a vision of death and of resurrection. But God says, look, don't worry about the fact that you do not understand. It's for a future time. It's going to come later. It's not for you to know. Just, just shut up the book, seal up the book, seal up the vision. It's good that you've written it down, but not yet. You've got to wait for later. And then 600 years pass. And then the man Jesus turns up. And in Mark chapter 8, this Jesus comes and says, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected, be killed, and three days rise from the dead. It must happen. It has to happen. Why? Because God's Word promised it. Why? Because now is the time when Daniel is no longer to be shut up, now it's the time for it to be revealed. But Peter still did not understand. He's still a bit blur. Peter was still thinking about, you know, political situations and, and, and the Christ coming and defeating the Roman Empire. He did not understand that Jesus was not just a little local king. Jesus is going to come as man to rule the whole world, to rule the whole of history. He's going to be the son of man who rules all eternity. And so Jesus counter-rebukes Peter. He says, get behind me. What were you thinking is the world's way of thinking. And then Jesus says, if you are ashamed of me and my words, I'll be ashamed of you when the power comes, when the Son of Man comes, and guess what? Some of you standing here will not die until you see it come. Now do you get it? Now do you see why some will still be alive when the Son of Man comes? Or are you still be confused? How can be talking about the second coming? The second coming hasn't come yet. What is it about? Now, you've got to remember that Daniel, from the Old Testament, when he looked forward to the coming of the Son of Man, he looked forward to the end of the world. The one end of the end of the world. It's like if you were uh, in uh, New York. Uh, 
Uh, if you've been to New York, you can take a cruise and you go down Hudson River. And when you're certain uh, way down Hudson River, you see that you, you can't see the Twin Towers anymore. I'm sorry about that. Uh, Bin Laden uh, killed my illustration for me. But um, there used to be the Twin Towers there. And when you look down from an angle, you see there's only one tower, one World Trade Center. That is exactly like Daniel when he looks from the Old Testament and he looks forward to the coming of the Son of Man. It's just one tower, it's just one coming, it's just one end of the world. And then Jesus comes. And then he dies. And then he rises again. That is the coming of the Son of Man. That is the end of the world. You see, even Jesus, when he's teaching in the gospel, he's speaking a bit like the Old Testament prophet and looks forward to the end of the world. And he sees that when he dies and rises, the end of the world has actually invaded into the present. That in his death and resurrection, the end of the world has arrived. The one point in time. Now, that one tower is all that you see. Now do you see why when the Son of Man comes in glory, when he comes in power, it will be the time when the people will actually see this end come. Now, when you go a bit further down the Hudson River, you go, oh, there's actually two towers there. And you go a bit further down, you can actually see the, the separation between the first tower and the second tower. That's what it's like for us. Jesus has a first coming, and now we see he has a second coming. That in this invasion of the coming of the Son of Man into our history, we now have the first coming, and the second coming. But really, both comings is the end of the world, is the judgment day. Judgment day has arrived already, and we're just waiting for the mop-up process. If you have a bigger step-back view, you see that really it is just one little coming. There it is, this one little point, one little coming. That is why in those passages I just uh, skipped past. Remember in um, Acts chapter 1, that uh, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's shown himself to lots of different people. At one time, 500 people. He's alive, physically alive. And as he's about to be taken into heaven, he says, uh, uh, an angel says to the disciples, don't worry, you saw him go up to heaven in a cloud but he'll come back in a cloud as well. See, there's the Son of Man being carried in the cloud to God. And he'll come back in the cloud. It's not really talking about his mode of transportation. It's trying to make us think about Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man coming in the cloud, it's all one event. But now there's a little delay. And so we can see 
that yes, he's going to come in the future, but look at Acts chapter 17. God has set a day in which he'll judge the world, the final judgment day. And how do we know that? This is a judgment day who's going to be judged by man. Look, you know when Jesus comes again, he's not just going to be God. He's going to come as God and man. Jesus remains a man. The man who rules the world is going to come as man to finally judge. And how do we know that? Look what Paul says. God's given assurance of that by raising him from the dead. The one resurrection of Jesus is signals the judgment day which has now arrived. And so, it is the end that is not just near, it's here. It's already happened. A little while ago, I had uh, two friends who were Malaysians, and they told me the story that uh, they come back to KL and they're driving around at night, and they are driving to this new uh, highway, new overpass, new expressway. And so they were driving along, and then suddenly uh, my friend who was in the passenger seat cried out, stop, stop, stop. And his friend put on the brakes and wondered why. And it was because they were just five metres from the end of the flyover, which had not been finished. Uh, I don't know how that can happen, but you know, right? Uh, somehow they got past all the barriers and just as well they stopped, isn't it? Because the end was right there. Jesus has come and the end can be any moment. Sure, we don't know exactly which date, but we don't know when it's not going to come either. It could be at any moment. That is the life that we live in this world. Well, here we are in 2022. I don't know where you are in, your t in that timeline, depending on how young or old you are. Uh, you were born, you went to school, you went to work, and you bought your bungalow, and you got married, and then you had your career, and then you, you have children, right? And somewhere in, in, that, in that time frame is, is our life, is our timeline. But you've got to remember that this timeline actually fits into the first and second coming of Jesus. That's where we are. We're already at the end. And so we are those who are to live in the end. And Jesus says that those who live in the end must suffer. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. What does it profit a man that he gained the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in exchange and return for his soul? For if he is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man. Also be ashamed when he comes in his glory and with the holy angels. Friends, that view of where we are in life now should change everything about life. So why is it that if you're going to be a real follower of Jesus, you must take up your cross and follow him? Remember, 
It's because Jesus is that son of man who was oppressed and then came back in glory. But remember, as the son of man, he wasn't just a one individual figure. He was the figure representing all of God's people. And now if we're going to call ourselves God's people, then we also are part of the son of man who must suffer before we come to glory. There is no shortcut to heaven without suffering. And we're not just talking about suffering in terms of the illnesses we may come across. It is the suffering for putting Jesus first. This is the suffering of perhaps even persecution. It sounds crazy, doesn't it? That people would suffer now when they could actually have great security and money and, and power and prestige and fame. One of uh, the students uh, we had back in our church many years ago uh, was a man who um, did his PhD on what I thought was the, the coolest PhD anyone could, could dream of doing. He was doing aeronautical uh, science, aeronautical engineering, and he did his PhD on Formula One F1 airfoils, right? Those are the men amongst us, oh, how cool is that? F1, you know, so much money, you know, that drive to survive, you've watched that, haven't you? And my friend could have actually been on the Ferrari team, right, and designed cars for them and travelled the world. But he became a Christian and he thought, if I did that, it would be very hard for my Christian life. And so he decided to actually give it up. I visited his, uh, his room and he had lots of uh, model Formula One cars. He had lots of books. It's not the kind of books that we read, you know, nice pictures. And now he had all the detail, all the specifications of all the... He was really into it. This was his dream job. This was... But he understood where he was in life. Now, friends... Whatever career we might have, the great passion we have, the thing that will give us security, the thing where everyone will go, oh, wow, you got that job. We live in the last days. Or another student, a girl who was Buddhist but became a Christian. Her parents said, I've, I've lined up different men for you to marry. Don't get baptised yet, because if you get baptised, then your pool, your fishing pool of which men you can marry as a Christian suddenly going to shrink very small, right? And yet, she was willing to get baptised to put Jesus first above even romantic relationships. I've had friends who could have stayed in Australia, could have got their permanent residency in Australia, could have got their citizenship in Australia, and yet have chosen to come back to Malaysia for the sake of the gospel message. Some in full-time ministry, some not in full-time ministry, but willing to come so that they can support, be partners with others that the message of Jesus can be known in this country. That's crazy, isn't it? 
Anybody who's anybody's trying to head somewhere else. But they've chosen to come back. It sounds crazy until you understand where we are in history. See, there was a man who now no one thinks is crazy. And that man is this man, Rick Rescora. He's an unsung hero of, well, of New York City. He was ex-military, he fought in uh, Vietnam. And uh, in the 1980s, he was uh, retired and from the military and he was the security officer in one of the big financial firms called Morgan Stanley. And they uh, had a firm who, which were there in the second uh, tower of the World Trade Center. And in the 1980s, he said to the New York Port Authority, which were the people who were managing the whole building and everything, he said, look, uh, there's a real terrorist threat here because anyone can drive a bomb into the underground car park of the World Trade Center and let off a bomb and, and, and shatter the, the pillars and you just haven't got enough security to, to stop such a thing. And the New York Port Authority said, eh, that may happen, but we got no money for this. And so it just ignored him, dismissed him. Well, in 1989 or 94, 1994, something like that, 93, exactly that thing happened. Some of you may remember someone drove a truck into the World Trade Center, let off a bomb, but just as well it wasn't big enough a bomb to bring the whole place down. But that incident suddenly made everyone think, ah, this Rick is not crazy. We should listen to him. Well, at least the people in Morgan Stanley listened to him. They gave him the ability to call a fire drill anytime he likes. So just imagine, right? The Morgan Stanley, they owned about 20 floors of the World Trade Center. You know, they are high, these are high flyers, you know, and bankers and stockbrokers, etc. And then he could just call any time a fire drill. There's working there, and he, he gets on his bullhorn and says, it's fire drill time. They could lose hundreds of thousands of dollars just in that one morning. But Morgan Stanley allowed him to do that. And the one thing he said is, when there's a real fire, you've got to make sure you listen to me. And one thing you definitely should not do is don't listen to the New York Port Authority. They, they just don't know what they're talking about. Well, the morning of 9-11 actually came. From the 44th floor of his Tower 2, Rick saw the smoke that was in Tower 1. And the announcement came in Tower 2 by the New York Port Authority that said, everyone, keep calm and stay behind your desk. Keep calm, stay behind your desk. Rick said, no, 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 you've got to go, 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 right? Did what we're doing the drill, go downstairs, downstairs. And because of that, some 2,700 people of Morgan Stanley were actually saved. They went down, they got out before that second plane came and hit Tower 2 
and then the whole building pancaked down. As he was going down the stairs, he rang up his wife and he said, Dear, I love you. Stop crying. If something should happen to me today, I want you to know that I've never been happier in my life. You made my life. He went down, got everyone out, got himself out, but he went back up to get the stragglers when the building came down and his body was never found. On his gravestone, it says this. Cyril Richard Rick Rescola, 1939 to 2001. Rick gave his life in the terrorist attack on the World Trade Center, New York, September 11, 2001. While directing the evacuation, his actions on the day saved over 2,700 lives. And then comes a quote, actually, from Jesus' words. Greater love hath no man that he give his life for his friends. See, friends, none of us see that Rick is crazy, do we? None of us should see that Jesus was crazy to give his life, that many will be saved. None of us should see as crazy we who actually give up whatever is our passion in this world in order to live for Jesus. And by our life, by our saying the kind word, by our telling people about Jesus, our neighbour, our family, our Bible study group, to warn people that this world is coming to an end. You know, friends, uh, people on that World Trade Centre, as the planes hit, as they knew the building was on fire, they were all making phone calls, weren't they? But they weren't making phone calls to their stockbroker, were they? They were making phone calls to their loved ones. See, in the end, there's a lot more to life than what you can earn and your security here. No, there's a lot more to life even than relationships here. There's relationship with Jesus and the people that he has come to save. Friends, it's not a crazy thing. It's the most sensible thing to do once you see that the end is actually here. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Friends, our world keeps on telling us stay behind the desk. Stay behind the desk. But that's the craziest, stupidest thing that you ever do when the world is coming to an end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the warning you give us from way back in Daniel that we now can see so clearly that Jesus is that Son of Man 
that man who is dead, not dead, but risen, and has brought in the end of the world, the final judgment day. And thank you that we can live our life now knowing that we are in the very midst of this judgment day. That has started. And so we pray that we might live as those who are willing to suffer for Jesus' sake, for his gospel's sake, that we might be those who escape judgment because of what he has done by dying for us. Please, Father, help us not to listen to the voice of our world that keeps on saying, stay behind the desk. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.